Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. In this three-part series, we've been talking about how God has given us his grace. One of the most powerful things that we need to know, the thing that draws us and connects us to God, is a simple little concept called grace. Grace is God's faithful love in the face of the fact that he is, he is rejected by mankind. He is transgressed against by mankind. In essence, mankind does nothing to deserve his love, and yet God's love is so faithful, so steady, so certain. That's the concept of grace, that it continues despite the fact that we run away from God, even at times rebel against God directly. What an awesome thought grace is. But imagine, and I asked this question last week, imagine if we knew about this powerful grace of God, this love, this steady, steadfast love of God, but did not know how to access it. Imagine, for example, that someone told you, you have a million dollars in your bank account. But they didn't tell you where the bank was. They did not give you an ATM card. You had no way of knowing how to access your funds that you supposedly had. Wouldn't that be frustrating? And that's why I believe God has clearly identified not only that he loves us steadfastly, but he's also clearly identified for us three ways in which we can pull out our spiritual ATM card and, and get a download of that grace, get a, get a withdrawal of that grace that we can put to use in our lives. We talked first of all about the, the main way that we get to withdraw, make withdrawals on God's grace through the scripture, through the Bible. That was week one. Last week we talked about how we can make a withdrawal, withdrawal on God's grace through the waters of baptism. Now there is still a third way, very powerful way, in which we can find fuel for our journey, that we can access this powerful grace of God. As I was thinking about what I could compare, what kind of fuel I could compare the Lord's Supper to, the thought came to my mind that really there's no fuel that compares to the Lord's Supper like the fuel nitroglycerin. You know, nitroglycerin is an amazing fuel. In fact, we probably would not have space travel today without the solid rocket fuel of which one component is nitroglycerin. And yet I think most of you know that nitroglycerin is somewhat volatile, that in its pure form, it, it can be kind of a, a curse as well as a blessing. Some of you may not know that the person who figured out how to stabilize nitroglycerin so that it could be incorporated into explosives like dynamite was the man after whom is named the most important peace prize in our world today, Alfred Nobel. Did you know that? The founder of the Nobel Peace Prize, Alfred Nobel, is the one who invented nitroglycerin. And in fact, nitroglycerin in its first experimental stages was so volatile 
and, and so dangerous, Alfred Nobel actually lost his brother Emil to an explosion that came about as they were experimenting with the early stages of developing nitroglycerin. It became so hazardous, in fact, that where Alfred Nobel was developing this, the city in which he was developing nitro, they told him, you can't run your experiments and develop this anymore here. And he was forced to go out into the middle of the river on a barge that he designed so that he could do further experiments. That's how volatile this powerful fuel was. Eventually, as you know, he, uh, he discovered ways to stabilize it so that it could be transported. The first way was through some clay that he combined the nitroglycerin with, and it was able to become what we eventually know as dynamite and then incorporated into rocket fuel. What's really amazing about nitroglycerin is that later this, this very explosive fuel became a way to help people who have heart disease. That you can take a little tablet of stabilized nitroglycerin, put it under your tongue, and if you're suffering from the pains of angina, it will make your angina go away because it, it, it reduces, uh, it, or it, rather it expands your blood vessels so that it reduces the blood pressure that you're, that you're having if you have high blood pressure that causes heart pain. Isn't that amazing? Here's this fuel that is at one and the same time so powerful that it can be a component of rocket fuel, so important that it can be used to, to help people with heart disease, and yet, if misused, can be very, very dangerous. And that's exactly what we hear when we read about the fuel of the Lord's Supper. And I don't, this is not something that's well known in our world today, that the power of the Lord's Supper can be both a blessing, a tremendous blessing, but it can also be a curse if the Lord's Supper is not used properly. Did you know that? And this is said very clearly in the passage that we're about to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I, uh, I would love to have you open up your Bibles with, with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you didn't bring your Bibles with you this morning, pull out this little white sheet that's in your bulletin folder called the Crosswalk Notes, and I've written it down for you. We'll also put it up on the, on the projector. We're going to tee off on this passage this morning. We'll bring in a couple other passages as well, as we usually do. But essentially, we're going to mine this passage and see what it has to say to us about this awesome, powerful nitroglycerin of a sacrament called the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to start reading at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. 
Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. I want to start today, and if you have your crosswalk notes out, by reviewing a couple of things that we learned last week, because I think they're important to our discussion of the Lord's Supper. On the top of your uh, crosswalk notes, I want to remind you of what we learned last week about the fact that, as I've explained already this morning, there are three means by which we can access God's grace. The Word of God, baptism, and now we're going to talk this morning about the Lord's Supper. Those last two can be grouped into what are called sacraments. And let me remind you what I taught you last week a sacrament is. You can write this down, um, and perhaps this will help as we go forward in our discussion of the Lord's Supper today. A sacrament is a sacred act which is established by Christ that combines earthly elements with God's Word, and which offer spiritual benefits when we use them. A sacred act established by Christ, earthly elements combined with God's words and promises, when we make use of them, God gives us blessings and benefits. I really want to hone in this morning on those very first words, a sacred Act. In today's world, there are a lot of things that used to be sacred that really aren't very sacred anymore. You, you turn on your television, for example, and there is discussion going on about pretty much anything that you could imagine that 25, 30, certainly 50 years ago would have been considered way too sacred, way too private and personal, way too intimate for anybody to discuss in a public forum. And today, 
it's all out there for any of us to see and hear about. Now, here's the danger of that. I'm, I'm all for openness. Trust me on that. I, it's one of our crosswalk values that we be completely open and honest with one another. So don't take uh, my next words as saying I, I don't like openness. In fact, in many ways, I think we're at a better place than we were 25 or even 50 years ago. But here's where I have a little bit of a problem. I think many of you may have a similar problem, and that is everything has become common. And by common, I mean every day. There is no longer anything special or higher or a thing in which we can really link to God in a very sacred way. Sacred really means holy, and holy really means set apart. Are there things, are there times, are there places in your life that you set apart as sacred and holy for God? We talk about the Lord's Supper and coming to eat the Lord's Supper. When we call it a sacred act, we're saying that this is the opposite of a common act. It's a very special, powerful, and in fact, the Bible reveals it as a very mysterious and even miraculous moment every time we eat the bread and drink the wine. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. What is it that makes the Lord's Supper so mysterious and miraculous? I'm going to talk this morning about three things that make this very miraculous and very powerful and ultimately very sacred and special. You know that the Lord's Supper, I think you know, and if you don't, let's, let's talk about it in a minute, was established by Jesus himself. Do you remember when? It was established by Christ himself on the night that he was literally betrayed and arrested and the very next day would be Good Friday, the day in which he was executed on a cross, gave up his body and his blood for our souls so that we could be in heaven. That day is commonly referred to as Maundy Thursday. And, um, and that word, Maundy, a lot of people go, what does that word mean? It's actually from the Latin, mandatum novum, which means a new command. When Jesus gathered his disciples into that upper room where he was going to introduce the Lord's Supper. He washed their feet. Do you remember that? When he washed their feet after he was done serving them, he said, a new command, a mandatum novum, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Today, all around the world on Monday, Thursday, we celebrate the fact that Jesus huddled up with his disciples and established the Lord's Supper for their strengthening and for their courage, which they would sorely need in the days to come while Jesus and after Jesus was, was being executed. When Jesus was in that upper room, he commanded them to pass this sacrament down from generation to generation. He said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. That was the very establishing or instituting of the Lord's Supper for all people of all time who follow Christ. 
But he also said something that is really key on that very first Maundy Thursday in that upper room where he was gathered with his disciples. And I want you to uh, pull out your crosswalk notes because this is really the very first place where we see something miraculous and mysterious is truly occurring in the Lord's Supper. I, I put in your crosswalk notes Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. Take a look at what that says. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to notice that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul quotes that very passage of Scripture. And he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on that night when he was betrayed, the night that we just read about from Matthew, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body and so on. Repeating the words from Matthew. The very first thing that we clearly get from these words, the very first miracle that is clearly taking place is that Jesus is saying as he gives them bread and wine, this is my body. In some mysterious and miraculous way that admittedly I can't understand, you can't understand as human beings. Jesus is literally saying that when we eat that bread, when we drink that wine, along with that bread and wine, we are truly and really receiving Christ's body and blood in a very powerful, mysterious, and miraculous way. Now, I can't explain it. Certainly, I know from receiving the Lord's Supper many, many times that when I come to the table, I, uh, I don't taste anything that, that tastes like meat or tastes like blood. I can't detect it physically, and that's why I call it mysterious and miraculous. But when... Jesus clearly says, this is my body and this is my blood. I believe that somehow in, with, under that bread, along with that bread, along with that wine, is also coming into me Christ's true body and true blood. Theologians down through the ages have called this the doctrine of real presence. And that says it all right there. Along with the bread and the wine, Christ's body and blood are really present. When we receive the Lord's Supper, we don't receive two things. We don't receive just bread and wine. We receive four things. Bread, wine, body, blood. This is my body, Jesus said. This is my blood of the covenant. The Lord's Supper, as you know, is called Holy Communion at times, right? And one of the very first things we need to understand about that word communion comes from a Greek word, koinonia, which means coming together, sharing in. Is that Jesus literally says that with this communion, there is a communion between 
the bread and the wine and the body and the blood, those four things are coming together and being shared in at once. Let me show you another passage that clearly indicates this. Notice I put this one also in your crosswalk notes, what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Let me just page over to it. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it says this. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Key words there. Because what he's... What Paul is saying there is this is such a powerful and miraculous moment because when we eat this, we're not just eating common earthly elements anymore. In a very real way, we are participating in the body and the blood of Christ. Again, that word there is that Greek word koinonia. We are sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. In fact, One of the other translations of the New Testament called the New Living Translation, if you happen to have one of those, you'll notice that it actually translates it that way. Let me read it for you. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? So there is the very first reason why This is truly a mysterious, miraculous, and sacred moment when you and I come to the Lord's table. We are very literally partaking of bread and wine, but also Christ's true body and true blood. This is so important, in fact. Remember how I said that the Lord's Supper can be both a blessing and a curse? I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 11. I didn't put this one in to your crosswalk notes. But in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, please do not come to the Lord's Supper if you don't understand that Christ's body and blood are really present there. In 1 Corinthians 11, 27, 28, and 29, he says that very clearly. Let me read it for you. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, that's an amazing concept, that a person could do something like receive the Lord's Supper, and instead of being cleansed and helped and blessed, he could become guilty. Paul goes on to say, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And then he goes on and he says something really important. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, without recognizing that Jesus' body and blood are really present, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. Nitroglycerin. Very powerful, so powerful, it's the rocket fuel of the soul. So powerful that it can truly help to heal hearts of sin and guilt and shame. But also, it can be a curse as well as a blessing, and that is clearly indicated. Now, I realize 
this is something that is not commonly taught in today's world. Some of you may be thinking, boy, this guy is really out there with this teaching. But if you are thinking that right now, I just ask you to step back. Take a real objective view of 1 Corinthians 11 and see what it says. Ask yourself truly, objectively, is any part of this saying that this can be a tremendous blessing to us? And yes, you're going to get the answer, it is, and it can be. But also, is there any part of this that is saying, be very careful how you handle the Lord's Supper, because it can also end up not being a blessing. In fact, you can eat and drink judgment on yourself if you handle it without care. Our first point, something vitally important for us to understand about this sacrament is that it is a very sacred, holy thing in which there is a communion, a bonding, if you will, of bread and wine in Christ's true body and true blood. That's our first point for this morning. Now, what are you thinking about this? Some of you might be thinking, okay, well, that's mildly interesting. Obviously, there's a miracle happening. Some of you might be going, wow, that is really cool. It's a modern-day miracle. I never realized that neat and that holy and that special of a thing is happening in the Lord's Supper. I'm so glad Pastor Jeff taught this. I never knew that before. Some of you, as I already alluded to, may be thinking that I'm a big wacko. That's okay. All I ask is that we always go back to the Scripture and see what it truly says. But there is more than one type of communion that takes place in the Lord's Supper. What makes this very sacred and very miraculous and mysterious is not only is there a communion between the elements and, and Christ's body and blood, but there is also something very, very important happening in your relationship to God as you receive the Lord's Supper. There is a bonding, a communing, a sharing that is going on between you and God, and that is so vitally important. And one of the wonderful things of the timing of this message is that it comes on the Sunday prior to Holy Week. You do know, don't you, why Jesus turned away from just simply preaching and teaching and told his disciples, we're going to stop all this now. I'm going to Jerusalem. And even predicted to them ahead of time, said, there I am going to be crucified. I'm going to be executed. His disciples tried to discourage him from that, to dissuade him from that. And yet he was very resolute, determined. Why? Why was Jesus so determined to spend that last week in Jerusalem and ultimately on the very first Good Friday to give himself over so that he could be crucified? The answer is simple. Long ago, thousands of years before Christ did that, God had told Adam and Eve, that if they disobeyed his command, they would hurt and harm not only themselves, 
but from that point forward, the entire world. And that the relationship that God had with his created human beings that he loved so much would be permanently broken. Sin would bring death into the world. Horrible. And death, you know what that is defined as by the Bible? Here's the key point that I'm going for. Death is separation from God and his blessings. Key in on that word separation. Instead of people being tightly bonded to God, walking as one with God, the way Jesus can say about his relationship to the Father, I and the Father are one. There's no separation between us. The way way God indicates that marriage should be, and the two shall become one flesh, he says. That kind of oneness was intended for our relationship with God. And when sin was brought into the world by Adam and Eve's original act of sin, it created a huge chasm of separation called death between us and God. And Jesus was resolute about getting to Jerusalem because he wanted to close that gap. He wanted our relationship to God to be close and tight as if we are one with God again. But he knew a price had to be paid, a price that would be paid in his own body and in his his own blood to bring about that thing which we call reconciliation. That's what Jesus did as he went to the cross, not just in a general theological way. And here's the important thing. He did it in a personal way for you. Because that original sin that Adam and Eve did, it was passed right down to you today. By nature, we're all separated from God. You are too. Until Jesus comes into our lives. His body, his blood, Bonds you back together. Now, in the Lord's Supper, we get to make a withdrawal on that bonding strength of God's love and mercy and grace, on that act that Jesus committed for us on the cross of giving up his body and blood. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we're tapping directly into that love, that steadfast love of God called grace that drove Jesus relentlessly to the cross. That's what put him in Jerusalem. You know that, don't you? Grace is what put Jesus in Jerusalem. His love personally for you. That's why this thing is so sacred and so holy. And it needs to be treated that way. Have you ever looked at some of the examples in the Bible of when people were coming into a holy moment with God? I I was thinking about the time when Moses met God at the burning bush, and he starts to walk up to God and start to converse to God, and God says, hold it just a moment there, Moses. This is a very special, holy moment. Take off your shoes, because the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. Not long after that, when God was ready to, uh, to give his commandments to the children of Israel, 
lightning and thunder was coming out of Mount Sinai. And he told Moses, wall that mountain off. Don't let the people come here. This is a special and holy time for this mountain. Don't even let them approach me at this moment. This is a holy moment. When Isaiah received his call to be a prophet, he stood in the presence of God in a vision. And he said, woe is me, God. I don't belong here. I'm too sinful. And, and God had to send an angel with a tongue to, to cleanse his lips and make him ready for being a prophet. All these very special and holy times. Are we prepared to understand the holiness of the moment, the set-apartness, the specialness of the Lord's Supper? You know, I want to take you back to that verse 27 where it says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. There's only one other place in the Bible that I know of that uses a similar phrase to show how serious something is. If you come to the Lord's Supper, Paul says you're guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Paul uses a very similar turn of phrase when he talks about sexual sin. And he sets that sin apart. And he says, don't you know that when you, out of your lust, practice sexual sin, that's, that's something very, very set apart. Because as it says, you are sinning, Paul says, against your own body. I put the verse in your crosswalk notes for you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Now here's my point of bringing that up. Sexual intimacy is supposed to be also a very sacred moment between you and one other person that brings you closely together. In that same way, when you come to the Lord's Supper, it is a very sacred, holy, and intimate moment with God, bonding you to him. And in that way, Paul says, we are to be truly one with God and treat this specially. Here's my second major point. When you come to the Lord's Supper, Jesus is mysteriously bonding you to himself. I want to take this one last passage. Reading on from verse 27, Paul says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on, on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Clearly, Paul is saying, treat this with special care. But it doesn't end there. Not only are we bonding to God when we come together in Holy Communion, another very powerful thing is happening. All the people 
that we're coming to communion with, there's a communion that takes place there too. We are bonding with all of them as well. Take a look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. He says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. This is the last critical point about communion and what makes it mysterious and miraculous. In some very mysterious and miraculous way, when you come to the Lord's Supper, you are literally spiritually bonding with all the other people that are at that table with you. God is literally drawing you together into this most amazing huddle. And I, and I look at it that way when I'm at the Lord's table taking communion. I'm thinking of it as, as, as I take in the body and blood of Christ, I'm also looking around at the other people that are there. And, 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 the, and this chapter literally says when, when I or you come to the Lord's table, we're saying, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're actually looking each other in the eye and we're saying, are you in? You really believe this? You have my back? Because I've got yours. You know, this world, this is something that we don't talk about real frequently, is in a titanic battle between good and evil. Do you know that? Between God who wants love and eternal life in heaven with him to prevail between Satan who wants to see every last one of us dead and in hell where he is. It's easy to forget that that titanic battle between good and evil is going on. But when you come to the Lord's Supper, what, what the Bible is saying, picture yourself in that titanic battle between good and evil. Huddled up with the people who are closest to you because they are fellow Christ followers, looking at one another in the eye and saying, can we get this done with the help of God, with God's power? Are you ready to move forward? Am I ready to move forward? Are we together in this? Because that's what's happening. Now let me wrap all this up. Our third point is just simply this. Jesus mysteriously bonds you with fellow Christians. I'm not going to dig into it because this sermon's going a little bit long, but I want you to check verses 20 and following. This is so important to Paul that we understand that we're bonding with one another, that he literally tells the Corinthians, you guys aren't bonding in your actions when you come together. You're being selfish. So forget even calling it the Lord's Supper for you guys. Because the very thing that this sacrament is supposed to be doing, drawing you together, is literally separating you. And he's obviously unhappy with them because they don't get that they're being bonded together. Let me conclude by just simply saying this. Why have I talked this morning so much about the importance of bonding? Bonding between the bread, the wine, Christ's body and blood, bonding between God and you bonding amongst ourselves. I don't know if you know this, but one of the greatest heroes for me is a man from 60 years ago. 
man by the name of Jackie Robinson. You know who Jackie Robinson was, don't you? The first African-American player to play baseball in the major leagues. 1947, he was called up by the Brooklyn Dodgers. Many of you know this story. And um, when he was called up, he was already a, a great, great baseball player. But there was a manager, and you probably don't know his name, the general manager. His name was Branch Rickey. Branch Rickey knew something about this man that he would ultimately call up to be the first African-American player in the major leagues, that he would have to be better than just a 300 hitter, that he would have to be better than just a great base stealer, both of which Jackie Robinson was. He knew that in the summer of 1947, that first African-American baseball player was going to meet tons of abuse that could shake him to his very roots and that could ultimately set back the whole cause of bringing African-Americans into Major League Baseball by a decade or more if that person did not react correctly. You know what Branch Rickey did when he selected Frankie Robinson? He selected a man who was not only a great baseball player, but he selected a man who was a fellow Christ follower. And that's the part that many of you may not know. Frankie Robinson was a devout follower of Christ. So was Branch Rickey. And Branch Rickey knew that with most Major League Baseball players, he would have tremendous amount of difficulty convincing them in the midst of the suffering that they were going to undergo to not lash back, to not try to get justice or revenge because he knew that would set everything back. He knew he needed someone who was so bonded to Christ that he could let all of that wash off his back like water off a duck's back, who could practice what Jesus had commanded. When you are hurt or harmed, turn the other cheek. You know how Frankie, Ro Frankie Robinson did it? Think it was easy for him? because he was a great Christ follower. He tells us it was the most difficult thing he ever faced in his entire life. And there were only two things that made it possible. Every day, he rebonded with God. He prayed, he read his scriptures, he asked God to help him. He asked God to forgive him for those feelings that were rising up in his heart that he knew were sinful. And he, and he got it all taken care of by being bonded with God. You know what the other thing was? He made sure that he surrounded himself with fellow Christ followers and huddled up with them, men like Branch Rickey, so that he could also draw strength from those fellow Christ-following men and women in his life. Are you guys meeting challenges, maybe in your own life, that are not so different from Frankie Robinson's? I don't know. But if you think of his story, that tells you exactly why this sacrament is so important. We need, in this titanic battle between good and evil, 
to be bonded with God and bonded with one another so that we can truly live the life and the purpose that God has for each and every one of us in our own way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what an amazing sacrament the Lord's Supper is. And Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that often through our sins and our guilt, we, we actually unglue ourselves from you. And Lord, we would not be surprised for you to come unglued at us and be angry with us because of our sins and our willfulness. But Lord, you don't do that. In your amazing grace, you cover over your anger by sending your own son Jesus for us. You forgive us and you help us in your grace to move forward powerfully in our lives. Lord, we are grateful for that. Teach us the importance of these means of grace and of this powerful and sacred sacrament, the Lord's Supper. And help us to understand that when we come to this sacrament, you are bonding us ever more closely to yourself and ever more closely to one another so that we can live a life that gives glory to you, a life of gratitude for the forgiveness that you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com. 